Gentlemen, welcome to the Alpha M Podcast, the podcast where I talk business, self-improvement, lifestyle, and more. Whether or not it's just me sort of talking, a little bit of audio action for you to enjoy, or me sitting down with a special guest to find out more about the steps they took to become successful. Whether or not you're listening to this on the go, you're sitting at home right now listening, I appreciate your time. And so if you're ready, let's dive in to this next badass episode. When you launched Enemy, the initial price was $150, but you almost immediately dropped the price to just under $100. What was the reason? What are the lessons learned in that launch? Finally, can you talk about pricing products or services and any given advice or, or give any advice on that? All right. So here's the situation with Enemy. When I decided to make these sunglasses, I wanted to make a super high quality pair of sunglasses that normally would sell or retail for around that $300 to $400 price point but I wanted to sell them for an even better price. And so when we ended up developing and designing them because they are a custom design, I didn't just go to a factory and stamp a logo on it, we had a choice of what components to use. And so for these sunglasses, much like these other super premium high-end designer glasses, we use Italian Mazzacioli, I think I butchered the name of that, but Mazzacioli acetate from Italy. Acetate is not plastic, it's actually a live like compound, it's pretty incredible. and it, it actually smells like olive oil. When you, when you get a pair of like enemy sunglasses and you pull them out of the package, give them a smell. They have a smell. That's the smell of acetate. And personally, I love the smell. The other thing we did, spring hinges. Um, also, the big thing was the Zeiss lenses. Zeiss lenses and Zeiss it, optics are top of the line. Like in terms of like there is nothing better than Zeiss. And so when we, we did these sunglasses, I'm like, okay, that is the, the product that I wanna, I wanna make. Instead of 300 or 400, I think we should come in at around $150. It was like 50% less than these should be or would be sold at retail. I also wanted to use like high-end like packaging. I wanted the, the boxes to be like super cool. They were like originally like black velvet. We changed that because velvet is a nightmare. Nice cloths, nice boxes, like the packaging and the presentation. We wanted to all be like super luxe and high-end and it was. Some other things that I did in terms of with Enemy and trying to really build it as a premium lifestyle brand was like the website, right? I spent, I think it was like $43,000 on the domain enemy.com. But I did that because I believed in the brand and I believed that if I'm gonna be selling a premium product, I need the experience to be premium. And so we got our inventory and the other thing you need to understand and, and a lot of people don't uh, is that, that when you use like premium quality products or, or components to something, even if it's being assembled in China, it's still not like a five, these aren't like $5, $10, $15 sunglasses. Yes, there are a lot of them out there that are cheap cheap and low, low quality, but these are not like a low priced product. Like, like Landed, I'm not gonna ex exactly tell you how much they cost me Landed, but it's not like under $30 or anything like that. Unfortunately, if it was, that'd be better. But when I originally ordered the inventory, I didn't go like crazy overboard. I had a few different styles. I wasn't sure what was gonna sell, what wasn't gonna sell. So I went a little bit lower on the order volume because it was a new product, a new business. I had no idea. And as a result of that, the price per unit also went up. And so decided, all right, here we go, getting ready to launch. I did some you know, pre-selling, had people signed up, and we launched at that like $150 price point option. Now. Going into that, I was still not sure what the price point really should be. But in my head, I thought to myself, okay, if I do this weekend 
$300,000 in sales. My price is right. Where I came up with that number, I have no idea. It was just the number that I came up with and I thought if I do 300 grand in like three days, it's the right price. So we launched it, we emailed people, and we sold a ton of sunglasses. But it wasn't $300,000, it was around 150,000. And I thought, okay, something's up. And then I started reading the comments from the post. They're like, oh, it's too expensive, it's too expensive. And I said, all right, this price is not right. I need to get this thing under $100. And so I hopped on, I, I didn't call, I emailed because with China it's all like emails. And I said, all right, I knew sort of like the price breakdown in terms of if I ordered this volume, this is what I'd be, or where I would be at in terms of my cost. I knew that I could get the cost down significantly, not as significantly as the 30% price drop, but I decided two different things. I was going to A, I was going to commit, I was going to order more units in order to get the prices down. I was also going to pre-order lenses from Zeiss. That is, and, and the lenses for this product is the big like bottleneck because it takes a few months to actually produce the lenses. And so instead of going like just for the order that I'm placing, I ended up buying a larger order of lenses to get the prices down for, for the lenses, for the, the glasses that I had and the glasses I was going to be making in the future. I also decided to eat margin and actually make less on the sunglasses. And so, you know, it was, it was a, it was a multi-prong approach, but what I did was I identified that like super quick and knew that it was not the right, right price. I knew that if I got it under a hundred dollars at 95, I could probably sell more and make up for the amount of money I was gaining by selling it at $150. It's all about, it's all, it's all the, it's, it's math, it's numbers, right? If you think that you can exponentially increase the amount of sales, and even though you're not making as much per unit, you think that you can actually sell that much more in order to compensate and actually make more money because you're moving more units, that is the decision that you ultimately had to make. And so when I decided that, it was literally after like a day and a half, I ended up um, refunding Every single person that bought the sunglasses, I refunded them whatever the difference was in terms of you know, the difference between what they paid and $95, plus a discount. <laughs> I think I even threw like a discount code in there. And so I knew that it was gonna be a huge pain in the ass, it was gonna be a huge customer service nightmare, but I couldn't come on and say, hey, I know you guys you know, that, that were the early adopters and believed in me, you spent 150, but a week later I'm like, ah, it's 95, sorry, thanks though. I needed to give the money back. It was an easy decision, it was the right call, and so I did that. And that's kind of the story. Enemy is a hard business. You know, sunglasses, it was my first for, foray, is that the word? Anyway, it was my first time making, you know, a product like sunglasses. And it's challenging. I didn't realize all the nuance about sizing and the fact that people are gonna, you know, not like a size. And it, it, it's a complex business that does require a lot of capital to maintain any type of inventory or levels of inventory. Because say, you know, just use, like if, if a pair of sunglasses cost me $40 landed, you know, and you have a thousand, right? That's $40,000 for like one style that you have tied up in inventory. And until you sell that, that inventory, you're not getting that money out. And so it is, a, it, is a, it is a heavy cash requirement. It's also just challenging, it's different. You know, I didn't realize, you know, the seasonality with this, but um, it's been a learning experience. One that has had goods, good times, it's also had bad times, and we're still in the process, honestly, of figuring it out. 
it is doing well. It's not doing as amazing as I would hope it would, but you know, I'm kind of spoiled because you know, Tiege Hanley was a rocket ship. Pete and Pedro wasn't a rocket ship, but it now's kind of like grown because of some things we're doing. So, so enemy is is something that I'm still having. I'm having to break rocks, as they say. I'm having to work extra hard in order to do it, but that's kind of what you do when you're still figuring out the market, figuring out the marketing, figuring it out, figuring out the business. But uh, but yeah, so that's the story. I hope you got some value out of that. If not, it's still the story. How do you think you have changed as a person since you first started posting videos on YouTube and made a business out of it? So this is quite a question and something that I don't often think about, but when I do think about it, it's pretty amazing. So I've said this before, but posting YouTube videos has made me be a better person. And you know, what I mean by that is it's not that I was like a big like crap head before I started posting YouTube videos, but posting YouTube videos has made me really kind of look at myself in terms of the type of man that I am, the things that I do, and the consequences of my actions. And the main reason this happened was because, you know, when I started posting YouTube videos, I didn't know, like, I didn't, like subscribers, I had no idea. Like I was just posting stuff and, and I was doing what I was doing. And one of the things that I was doing though, however, was, was kind of being, a, I was looking at what else was popular on YouTube and thought that if I wanted to be successful on this platform, I needed to be outlandish, I needed to be racy, I needed to say things that would cause like a little bit of controversy. Now this was back in like 2008 and nine when, you know, it was kind of like the wild west. Like you could say whatever you wanted, there were no real restrictions, there was nothing. There wasn't like, you know, any type of like YouTube, like policing that like there is now. And the people that were growing, the people that were popular were the people that were really racy. And so I thought that that's what I needed to do. And I started posting videos and I was, you know, some of the videos when they started were like super like PC and normal. And I was just talking about like how to tie a Windsor knot and stuff like that. But then I was like, okay, let me take it a little bit edgier. And so I did that. It didn't really work for me. It also felt a little bit creepy. And um, I ended up taking all those videos down. And um, you know, things really changed for me on the platform when I decided to just sort of drop the act and, and be vulnerable and be me and, and just be normal and, and let people sort of get to know the real me. Now, one of the things that happened is that I realized that I had the ability to actually make a difference. And I also, realized that I had people that were looking to me to sort of, you know, they were looking, they were looking at me as, as a role model, which was something I had never been before. And it was something that I, when I, when I first realized that like, wait a second, people are actually listening to like what I have to say. And so I need to be a little more careful about the things that I say. It was, it was scary. Honestly, I, I got scared. I literally remember the feeling of, Oh crap, you know, what am I going to do? And what happened as a result of this was I felt like it was an incredible responsibility. And so I didn't want to, honestly, when I, when I really think about things, I didn't want to let you down. I didn't want to let the people watching me down. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I didn't want to come and say one thing to you and then turn around and do something else. I didn't ever want to be in a position where I'm saying that, like talking to you and being like, be a good person, do this, don't drink and drive, don't do stupid shit, right? Be a decent dude, right? And I, didn't, I don't want anybody to be able to like, like 
you know, meet me out or see me somewhere or me do something that is contradictory to what I'm saying, because that's the thing that really upset me. You know, there are a lot of people out there, you know, celebrities that, you know, will say one thing, but then you see them and they're, they're a craphead or they're, they're, they're a jerk or they're doing things that are, that are contrary or contradictory to the message that they're, put, that they're putting out there. And it is such an incredible disappointment. I never wanted to be the, the I, I never wanted to be a hypocrite. So as a result of that, I sort of tightened up my act. I realized that if I am going to come on here, talk to you about being a certain type of person, I needed to walk the walk and not just talk, you know, talk the talk. Now, am I perfect? No. Do I still do things that I'd probably be embarrassed about if you knew that I did them? Yeah, of course. I'm human. But I try. And I try the best that I can in order to be the best person I can, not for me, but for you. I am hyper aware of my actions and you know the things that I do, the things that I say. And so that is probably the number one biggest thing that's changed since I started posting videos was, was that I try to be a better person. I try anyway. <laughs> sometimes I guess I am, sometimes I'm not. You know, in terms of some other things that have changed for me, you know, I, when I started posting videos, I was just coming off of like a bankruptcy. I was completely broke. I was, I was starting, you know, an image consulting business and I started doing YouTube videos just to be like, hey, you know, this is a platform. And the thing that I was, I've been seeking my entire life wasn't money, it wasn't fame, it wasn't anything like that. It was validation. It was making a difference. It was feeling like my opinion mattered. It was, a, it was, it was feeling like I was, I was worth something. And I think from a very young age, that was the thing that I had been searching for my entire life. Now, as I've continued to you know, post videos and, and create you know, businesses around the content and around the platform, you know, other things have changed in my life. You know, it's no secret that, that I probably am more financially you know, stable now than I was when I started. I, I won't say probably. I'm more financially stable now than, than when I started. Um, you know, I, I often think though, to myself, I wonder, I'm like, am I, you know, the same person that I was when I was broke? You know, I drive a nicer car now, I've got more money in the bank, but have I changed in terms of, has money changed me? It's changed certain aspects of my life, but I truly feel, and, and, I, and, and I say this, but I, it's, and you, you can probably tell that I'm a little bit like uncomfortable with this, but I like to think that it hasn't changed who I am in terms of a, a person in my character. Um, I like to think that anyway, but I don't know. Honestly, I can't say that, you know, I can't say that for 100% back. Now, one thing that I, I do feel is that I'm a pretty down-to-earth person, and, um, and that has not changed. Um, but you know, there's a downside to making money. Let me tell you, there, it's not all, you know, roses and, and, oh, you know, just fast cars and, and women. It's, it's, there's some downsides that come with it, a lot more responsibilities. And as things start to grow and, and you know, there's some downside. And, 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 and here's, the other, the, here's the other negative to, you know, being successful is that, you know, you're always aware, at least I am. And that's the thing I think that, that has not changed. I am always aware and I'm still fearful that at a blink of an eye, one wrong decision, one stupid mistake, it all could go away. And that's something that is like in my head, I am always like hyper aware. 
And so that's one of the other reasons why, you know, I try not to do stupid things. I try not to just react. I try to think through things and protect the brand, protect the things that I've worked for incredibly hard. But I'm always aware that, you know, most of us, we are like one or two bad decisions from being completely broke and like literally living on the street. And so that's something that in the back of your head, when you're always worried about that, you live a little bit differently than just carefree and just, you know, going out and doing stupid shit because you don't have any consequences or there are no consequences to your actions. I think that a lot of people that find success early in life are at a disadvantage. But, you know, when I started, you know, posting videos, I was well into my 30s, you know, and so, you know, I had a life prior to this. I had, you know, a good life, but I also had some real struggles. For the majority of my life, I struggled, to be honest. So anyway, that is the long and short answer to the question. Yes, I've changed some things for the better, some things for the worse, but it's very difficult, I think, to look at your, yourself or your situation or who, who you are as a person objectively. I think your friends, your family, people that have known you for years would probably be better at determining that and, and being honest, but uh, that's, what, that's what I got. You've started, um, or, or you've stated that you fully own Pete and Pedro and that you partially own Tiege Hanley. My question is, why do you seem to do more marketing for Tiege Hanley than Pete and Pedro? So, this is an amazing question and it is absolutely true. I do own all of Pete and Pedro and I am a part owner of Tiege Hanley. One of the deals and, and sort of parts of the, the negotiating equation when I started with T. Shanley was, was, you know, in set, like Kelly brought, you know, cash and equity, Rob bought, brought something else. You know, for me, my value was my marketing and promotional ability. And so what I brought to the table when I said, yes, make me a partner in T. Shanley, this is how much equity I want. And for that, you are going to get, or T. Shanley, the company is going to get one, two, whatever it is, you know, videos per month, me promoting it, you know, and then sort of you back out of the numbers. It's like, okay, so, you know, if I were to do a promotion for another company, this is kind of what the dollar amount would look like. So technically this is what I'm investing in T. Shanley. And so since we started, that has been, that has been, you know, my thing. I have been doing, you know, two promotions typically per month for T. Shanley. And one of the reasons why I have not backed off of that or sort of, or lessened my, my, my promotion is because even though a lot of my customers, a lot of my clients, a lot of you guys have heard about T. Shanley and I've talked about it, I still am incredibly effective in terms of a, a conversion tool and mechanism. So even though I've promoted the hell out of, out of T. Shanley over the course of the past like four years, it's still my job to talk about it. It's still what I bring to the table. Now, some additional things I bring to the table is, 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 is this vlog, right? That's another piece of content. I do four of those a month. Um, you know, the other, the other reality is that, you know, I feel like T. Shanley is, it, like, we are on the brink of, like, really kind of, like, like, exploding. And in terms of, you know, investment and, and return on my investment, I think that the potential for Tiege Hanley to grow into like a crazy giant monster company that could potentially at some point be attractive to somebody to possibly, you know, acquire us or, or for us to have some type of like big monster like equity or exit um, is, is really, really good. And so 
with that in mind, I feel like it's, it's a good investment in my time and my, promotion, my promotional capital in order to continue to drive it. Plus, I love the brand, I love the business, and I'm super proud of it. It's also my largest business, right? It's a big business. That being said, I do own all of Pete and Pedro. And one of the things with Pete and Pedro that I have been attempting to do is actually step back a little bit in terms of promoting it. One of the reasons why I agreed to actually hire Mike Levy from the Grooming Lounge to come on to help me at Pete and Pedro was that he sold me on the idea that, you know, it's not about you. It can't be about you. You are doing so many things wrong or not doing certain things in order to leverage your existing customers and really utilize like a mailing list and, and other like promotional mechanisms. And, and I was like, you know what, if it requires me to do less work, which honestly the, the secret is that it's made me do more work, just different work. And it's not as much about me. Hey, flash sale. Hey, buy this Pete and Pedro. Cause literally like every Friday at Pete and Pedro, I would go on and be like, Hey, flash sale this weekend only grab buddy, grab whatever. And, and, and I was discounting, discounting, discounting. He also got me into the mindset of you don't need to discount as much. You really need to pull back on your discounting that way. When you actually do a deal, when you do a sale, it's more impactful and you're honestly like wasting a lot of money because you don't need to give away this much. And so, um, so yes, yeah, so I, I, I purposely have pulled back some of my Pete and Pedro promotions. And the beautiful thing is that with the new strategy, Pete and Pedro this past year has grown 40% over the year prior, which it grew, you know, before, um, the year before. And so it's working and it's good. The goal from T. Shanley, even from like day one, is for me to like build it, like to really like champion it, to get it out there, but then for me to sort of back off and step back a little bit and allow sort of our marketing team and department to really, you know, raise the ship. And that's kind of what's happened. But that being said, I still am needed to continue to just put out content and to drive the message of Tej Hanley because I do still have a large audience and nobody in the universe converts as well as I do. And I, I, I say in the universe, but literally it's, I, I am a very, very, very good, what I've come to realize is I'm a very good salesperson and I do an incredible job, better than anybody that meant, and, and, and I say that because, okay, so I'm gonna toot my own horn here for a second. And I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing or you're gonna be like, you son of a bitch, you suck. Um, <laughs> you probably say that anyway. But I am a great salesperson. And out of all the people that Menfluential Media represents, nobody can touch me in terms of conversions, in terms of traffic. There are other people that are good, but in terms of, of driving a message, converting a sale, brand awareness, I'm the king. I'm the champ! <laughs> I'm kidding, I, but there aren't many things that I'm like the best at, but honestly, that is one of the things that I consider myself to be really good at, and I love it. I love sales, I love the whole process, I love getting products that I love, that I'm passionate about, and talking about them. And I think when you do that, you know, your audience can see, and so I guess that's another business takeaway. If you don't love a product, you absolutely should not be promoting it because your audience will tell, you will lose credibility, and that actually was one of the big things and the reasons why I didn't take that deal on Shark Tank the second time. They're like, hey, we want a piece of Alpha M. I'm like, okay, but then I thought, I'm like, yo, if their financial interest is tied to me promoting products, I'm gonna have a hard time saying no to something if it's a crap product. I have an idea for a non-alcoholic drink I want to start a beverage company. Just to let you know, beverage companies are tough. That is a tough market. It is a tough 
industry. Just, throw, just throwing that out there. You need to really educate yourself about the industry before you commit to, I'm not saying not to do it, but you better do your research. Um, one of the things that we, we had done at uh, Area 627, the, the company that I do where we get, you know, and potentially invest in things, we've had two beverage companies that have approached us and beverage, that's, 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 a, that's a hard thing because it's really expensive to ship, you know, because it's heavy, you need a lot of shelves, like it, it's, it's a tough, I'm not trying to talk you out of it. Let's, let's get to your question. I reached out to a few beverage development companies and they are happy to work with me on the formulation, but the cost is about 15,000 to 20,000 just for the development, which is expensive. Do you think there's a better alternative like formulation consultants, for example? I know Tej has a formulation partner, but what would you do if you had no partner and how would you handle it? So, so this is a great question, great question. You know, beverage companies, yes, they will help you out. Skincare companies, grooming companies, they will help you out. These labs will help you. But if you're not coming to them with something to actually massage and, and you know, figure out, it can be expensive. T. Janley, from day one, we had a chemist. That was like kind of like part of our secret sauce. We had a guy who was incredible at skincare and formulations, and he was a rock star. So like at his home, he had all the components, and he was, you know, like a mad scientist, mad handsome scientist mixing things and testing things and sending them to us to try. By the time we took our formula to a lab to actually say, this is what we want you to make, and they looked at the ingredients and saw the actual formulation, the thing they said to us and the thing that we always like will repeat because it's kind of like a feather in our cap is, do you realize what you have here? And we're like, no. He's like, these are Ferrari formulas, meaning like super premium, and you're selling them for what? And so that being said, we have had him. Now, that being said, there are other products that he might not necessarily be or have a skill set in. And so depending on the lab that you are going to, if you go to them and say, I want to make this, you could even give them like a sample. Like I want to make, like if there's a, a beverage that you're kind of like modeling or replicating or tweaking, maybe it's something where this is the base formula I want to add this or remove this. So you're actually bringing something of substance that their chemist can just kind of like deconstruct and re recreate. I think that might be an easier thing as opposed to starting from like zero. Long time ago, long time ago, I, I made a, a fat burning supplement back when I was at the nutrition store. And I went and it was a custom formulation. I think it literally cost probably back in the day like $5,000. And, you know, I went with, with, a, with a sample or a product. I said, this is what I have, but I want to add more L-carnitine. I want to add this, that, and the other thing in order to make it a better product. And they did that, but they had a base, they had a formulation sort of to start with. And so other than that, I don't really know what the other options are because with a product like this, a beverage, you might be able to try like whipping things up in your kitchen if you have the skill set, but most likely you don't. You definitely are going to need to have somebody that's going to help you and you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars that's that's expensive but i would definitely i would definitely sort of start start looking around and also before you do that you need to really understand the business to make sure that the business excuse me or potential industry you're going into is the right fit because i'm here to tell you not trying to steal your thunder but the beverage industry is hard watch shark tank Every time a beverage company's on there, they always talk about, I hate beverage companies or beverage is hard or whatever. 
but watch it because they're going to give you some more insight in the industry and why it's so tough and challenging. I don't know what the church will be. And for the record, the church is actually going to be opening. Let me think. Hold on. By the time you're watching this, not the, it's going to be open. We're opening in like, uh, uh, December 8th. December 8th is the opening date. So at that point, I guess it's safe to actually tell you what it is. Um, that's been really stressful. It has been really stressful. And I'll tell you a little bit about that and, and more about that soon. <laughs> Sorry, I went down the rabbit hole. Things, okay, I need to order the dumpster. I need to do some things. Anyway, he says, Steve Strait, question. He says, I don't know what the church will be, but would you consider opening a grooming lounge? I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask you because you partly own the Pete and Pedro hair products. Don't no, partly own, I own it. 100%, baby. Anyway, and Tiege Hanley Skincare, that, I own part of that. Um, company as well, as, as well. So next possible thing in my mind would be to open a grooming lounge for men or something similar. Um, and if that is not the church project, would you ever consider it as a business idea? Thanks in regard. So would I open a grooming lounge for men? And the answer is no, I wouldn't. And that is not what the church is for the record. But, you know, but, but it's a great idea, you know, and I can understand how that would be a very logical sort of thing for me to do. You know, but, but there are some downsides to dealing with, with men in that type of environment. Um, there was actually a real grooming lounge that was started by the grooming lounge, the company, down here in Atlanta years ago. It was in this, like, really beautiful high-rise called the Terminus Building. And I had known about the grooming lounge just from being a, a customer of the grooming lounge. I was not yet sponsored by the grooming lounge. I've done a bunch of you know, videos for the grooming lounge. I actually went up to DC to meet the founder, Mike Gilman, and, and have the grooming lounge experience where I went in, they sold a bunch of products. I went in for, for, a, for a shave. I think they also do like haircuts and things of that nature. Yeah, they definitely do haircuts. And that is right like downtown like DC. And the business I know personally, because I know sort of a little bit of the backstory, it's a tough business. It's a tough, it's a tough market. There have also been other places like, you know, um, what was that one that was like directly across the street? The Art of Shaving. The Art of Shaving, another business that is tailored and marketed to men to go in, get your cut, get your cut, buy your products. So kind of like a grooming lounge experience. I think that business is actually shut down. It's tough, right? You need a lot of customers. The other downside to dealing with men is that they are more price sensitive typically than women, right? Like a men's haircut, you know, what, how much could you charge for a, a haircut? Even if you offer like amazing customer service and everything, like 40 bucks, 50 bucks maybe, you need a lot of them. But a woman, right, a woman is going to be, you know, an average ticket price for a woman is going to be around like $120 to $130. Women are a better market in terms of beautification, lounge type things because they are more willing to spend a higher price point and more money on services like that. You know, do I think it's a bad idea? No. Do I think there are places out there that are probably working? There was another place called like Hammer and Nail or something like that that I heard of. I think I saw it even like on Shark Tank or something. There are lounges specifically designed for men that cater to men. And I'm sure that some of them do well, but it's a volume thing, right? You need a lot of people or you need to charge a membership fee in order to have access to it and make it more of like a private club type of situation. Um, and both of those things are not something that I would, I would be interested in getting involved in. It's, it's, it's easier to sell things to dudes 
online as opposed to like in person. But it could work. It could totally work. I like so if that's your dream, don't don't say yo Alpha wouldn't do it. Alpha just wouldn't do it cuz Alpha is scared of brick and mortar businesses. Alpha also knows how much easier it is to have online businesses. But apparently, that being said, I'm still interested in starting an on or a, a brick and mortar business because I am and I'll tell you more about that later. If you've watched this vlog long enough, there's actually a there <laughs> There was a there was a there was a vlog where I actually said I would be open to starting a specific type of business. You remember what that was? Is that the business I'm opening? Maybe so. My team and I are working on creating a business plan for a mobile coffee company, having a truck and fulfilling mobile online orders and are having some trouble uh, with industry background component. How do I identify areas of growth and market niches and define our market in regard to size of potential market and major, wait for it, uh, segments of overall market? Okay, so Anthony, I know nothing about the coffee industry other than I love coffee and I'm addicted to caffeine. I don't know how you go about, you know, going about this business. Maybe, you know, maybe start doing researches, maybe doing some research in terms of like, what areas of the country has the most like like coffee like 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 roasters or um, you know what country or what what uh, what city in the country has you know drinks the most coffee or you know I mean there are probably ways to do that but in terms of fulfilling like mobile orders like like you better have like 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 a hundred thousand people within like a one mile radius like that logistically would be really hard I think. Um, you know, now the whole like food truck industry, you know, setting up a food truck or setting up some type of like coffee stand somewhere, um, in a busy area, maybe that's a better model. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe it's about going and delivering. Oh, okay. 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 Go, here we go. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. What about going to offices and basically taking mobile orders? So like every day, um, you show up at a specific office that maybe has 20 or 30 employees and you know, each day, the day before they place their order, you show up and, you know, you, you make and, and give them all their coffee, you bring it to them. Um, that would be something where maybe you would have to sort of set up something with the business or something. I, I just don't know, but I think there's probably something you need to figure out a way in order to get around a lot of people that drink coffee and, and sell like big batches of drinks as opposed to like one off and two off and three off. So in terms of this business, I love coffee. I love the whole truck concept. I just don't know the best way to direct you or advise you because I don't know exactly like what you're thinking in terms of how you're planning on fulfilling. Is this you going and, and delivering like cups of coffee to people or is it, you know, grounds of coffee to like businesses or, or, or homes? I just don't know. And I think when you identify what your specific like target is or what your business model is, then I think you could have an easier time or we would have an easier time having a conversation or directing you on the best way to sort of strategize and go about it. So if you want to clarify down below, we'll definitely give it a better shot next week. So what do you think about taking money from parents for a potential business? I'm 19 and I have a job. My family is somewhat wealthy, but I just want to uh, get to the top. By the way, you're really inspirational. Just wanted to say thank you. So do you take money from your parents? Yeah. I think if they're interested in helping you, why not? This isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, you have an advantage over a lot of people. And so what are you going to do? Be like, uh, you know, I could get, because the, the truth is, 
Your parents are the ones that are going to want to support you and believe in you. Now, I am not a fan of people that are sort of, you know, suckling from the parental financial teat, as they would say, all their life. But if you are an entrepreneur and you are, there are a lot of amazingly successful entrepreneurs that got a little help from their parents because their parents had money. Because access to cash is not an easy thing to get. But if your parents are willing to help you fund your business or your idea, but just make sure that you know, it's not like three years, five years, 10 years, and you're still getting money from your parents because they're going to get annoyed. They're going to get pissed off. And really, if you can't make something work from the investment that they give you, then it's probably not the right business or the right investment. But at 19 years old, how else are you going to get money if you want to start your business? Just be sure that you don't take it for granted. And I guess that's probably the hardest thing, right? Because it was given to you. You didn't, you know, you do have a job, but in order to start, like, just make sure that you treat that money as if it was yours that you worked for. Because when you look at money and finances from the eyes of, I earn this, typically you're going to be more responsible and you value it more. But when it's handed to you, a lot of times we'll get sloppy, we'll get lazy, and we'll get careless when it comes to spending money, other people's money, that wasn't like hard for us to get. So, and that's one of the big things that like Kevin O'Leary will say. I want a company that is lean and hungry as opposed to like fat with cash. Because people that are fat with cash, meaning like they raised a bunch of money from outside investment, a lot of times they're very wasteful. And so just don't be wasteful and talk to them. And I would personally work out a thing with them, if you want to be taken seriously, of repayment. All right? Repay your parents. If you're successful, repay them. Hey, Aaron. Hope you're doing great. My question, I own a pretty successful men's clothing brand in Bavaria, Germany. Since Bavaria is the biggest state in Germany with a lot of very old and proud traditions, we embrace these influences and target specifically to local state customers, which is doing great. However, we're not sure how to expand our brand countrywide or even internationally. Any advice on this? Uh, uh, any advice on should we stick to our system and just add more products? Thanks for the, the help. Um, keep up the great work. So the question, if I'm understanding it, you've got a successful clothing company. Now, I don't know if you are selling wholesale to retailers or it's e-commerce. If it's e-commerce, that kind of changes my opinion. If it's retail and you're actually selling, I see, I don't, I don't know what type, I don't know where or how you're selling. And I think that's probably the question I need answered in order for me to better direct you because in my mind, if you are selling directly to retailers in your, in your state, wholesale, and they're selling your stuff, and that's your model and your business, then it is, uh, if it's, it, I don't know. I don't know how to tell you to do this because I don't know what your business is, uh, other than, a, 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 I just don't know. I'm, I'm struggling here. So what I need is clarification. Down below, why don't you ask again to specify exactly how you're selling your clothes and what makes it specific to that state? Like, I don't understand the proud tradition. Like, what makes it unique? I, I'm not sure why you wouldn't be able to expand it to other countries or even internationally. I just need more information. So if that is you, your question down below, please explain the business model a little bit better and maybe that'll be a way for me to 
better understand and direct you so I don't just like throw something out that's absolutely zero value. When starting Pete and Pedro, did you have one manufacturer or several to produce the products that you sell? And so what are the pros and cons? And if so, what are the pros and cons to your personal experience of having one manufacturer or more than one? So both Pete and Pedro and T. Shanley, one manufacturer when we started. Now, both Pete and Pedro, T. Shanley, multiple manufacturers. Um, you know, when you're starting out, it's hard to like, you know, it, it, it's very, it's hard to find one manufacturer and to figure everything out and the logistics surrounding one manufacturer. But both, like I said, Pete and Pedro and T. Shanley, when we started, that's what we had. So we, we, we worked with that. But it was very quick that we realized you need to have a little bit of bench strength when it comes to your manufacturer. Because if something happens, you know, if like, like with T. Shanley, right, the PM moisturizer smelled fishy. Why? Because the manufacturer had marine collagen that was like, like funky, right? It wasn't that it was bad, but it smelled funky, causing our products to smell funky. The more and the bigger that we get, the more you realize, or let me back, the bigger that you get, the more you're going to realize how how scary it is just having one manufacturer because for God, God forbid, if something goes wrong with that one, you as a manu or you as a business is totally effed, right? You're done because you know, this one manufacturer, if they mess something up or they get shut down or if COVID happens and boom, everybody gets sick and you're left there like, like, what do I do? It is better to have multiple vendors if you can. But when you're starting, chances are you're probably only going to, you know, you're going to be lucky to have one good one. But, um, but yeah, and as you grow, you also are going to have different, you know, needs as a, as a business. And so that's been one of the other things that, uh, that you're going to have to figure out. So as you grow, you are going to have to probably look for multiple vendors for your specific product. Um, but it takes time, you know, changing a vendor or trying to find a second vendor is going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take money in order to vet them and figure out if they can actually do what you need them to do. But incredible question. Would really love advice on which sports, meets, clubs, hobbies, etc., are great in order to meet some high net worth uh, people to just make good, valuable connections. Great question. Awesome question. Golf. <laughs> Golf is one of those hobbies that you can do. You don't need a lot of money in order to do it. Depending on where you're golfing, this is going to you know, be, be a thing. But, but golf is one of those hobbies that a lot of people that are, that are well-connected or successful, they, they, they golf and they meet on the golf course. And so if there was one hobby, I would say it's golf. That's the one. I just started a web development company. I need clients. My ideal client is a small business owner or someone who wants an e-commerce store. What would you focus on more, cold calling or Facebook ads? What I would probably do if I were you, first thing you need to do is get, get a few people and, and sort of you know, get people to actually do it so you've got you know, testimonials and referrals. What I would probably do is start going to networking events or um, local things, things like, like the Chamber of Commerce because these are going to be typically small business people and they're going to be somebody that you can actually talk to in person, explain what you do. Cold calls and emails, yes, it's effective, I'm sure, to some degree, but I think a better use of your time at first is really sort of learning to talk the talk and to network with, with entrepreneurs because the other thing is if you meet somebody and they don't need your service, you can always ask them, say, hey, you know, do you have a referral or do you know anybody that might need my service? 
And if they say no, okay, great. If they say yes, that's a, that's a foot in the door. And they, then you can actually drop their name. So personally, instead of running like Facebook ads and things of that nature, you could try that, small little budget, just to try it. You could send emails, test it, but networking events is probably where I would, where I would focus in my, my small, you know, in my community. But, uh, but you might want to test all three options and just see which one is producing more results and then whichever one does, keep doing that. And, uh, and that's probably how I would do it. But I'm an idiot when it comes to technology. Can you share your opinion on how to open online man's formal clothing line and how to start? Thank you very much. Yes. So, so the formal industry, I would probably start with something like, like accessories, right? Something that you can mass produce relatively affordably and then trying to get a customer base um, around that. You know, ties, pocket squares, cufflinks, tie bars. Um, I would go and look at the Gentleman's Gazette, all right? Raphael Snyder has done a really good job sort of like, like cultivating his passion of high-end men's like accessories and selling it to the masses or his audience. Uh, but it started with a website, it started with the Gentleman's Gazette, and then he started Fort Belvedere, his sort of accessory men's like item line around that. But he's done a great job. I personally know him and, um, and he's a rock star. Um, his business does very, very well. It's like a seven-figure business. So if that tells you anything in terms of the market, um, and then, you know, if you, you, you figured out an audience, you figured out a niche, you figured out products that they loved, if you wanted to then sort of scale into like formal wear, that's a whole nother animal. And there are so many complexities with custom clothing. Antonio Centeno, that's how he started. That's also the business that forced him into bankruptcy because it's a very tough business to do custom clothing and to do it at scale, it's even harder. How to find value of your services or your time not being afraid to ask for payment for your time. I've been struggling with uh, having myself paid. When I do something I like to do, I often forget that I should charge money for it. It also happens, uh, happened in my small business where I put everything I made back into the business and didn't pay myself. In short, creating something um, and earning nothing. This is a great question and something that I think a lot of people struggle with because asking for, for money and identifying what your value is is one of the hardest things to do. A lot of times, there are two things that happen. Number one, you undervalue yourself or you do things for free. The other thing that happens is you overvalue yourself. Like a lot of businesses overvalue themselves. One of the things that I learned the hard way is that I used to be a personal trainer. And I was, you know, I knew a lot about like diet and nutrition and workouts. And so what happened, a lot of people would come to me and they would say, hey, I want help on my diet. I want help on my workout. And I'd be like, okay. And I'd take my time and create some plan for them, some program. I'd give it to them and they wouldn't do anything. They didn't value what I was giving them because they didn't have to pay for it. And what ended up happening is I finally realized this. It was like an epiphany. I'm like, wait a second, no. If you want my advice, my time, my expertise, you've got to pay for it. And what that does is it sets a, a roadblock, a barrier. If somebody really finds what you're doing valuable, they're going to pay it because they understand. If they won't, then they just want, wanted something free and they're not worth your time anyway. And so all I, I guess I would say is I understand what you're doing, I understand what you're saying, but you've gotta take a stand because if you don't value yourself, nobody else will. It's about that first time that you actually set that, that paywall up and say, hey, yes, I would love to. This is what we're gonna do. This is what the fee is going to be. And sit back or send it to them 
And if they don't get back to you, they weren't serious. But I think what you're gonna find is the first time you get somebody to be like, okay, cool, no problem, and they pay you, done. That's the confidence you need. Good luck, I know it's hard, but you can do it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you dug it, make sure to drop us a review, also a rating, as this helps the podcast reach more incredible gentlemen just like yourself. And don't forget to subscribe because it's free and you don't want to miss another incredible episode. Guys, thank you so much for your continued support. I think you're amazing. And don't forget how awesome you are.